0: Hey Rockheads, this is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net.
1: .NET Rocks, episode 1304, with guest Mark Seaman. Recorded Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016.
0: Welcome back to .Net Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're still in Belgium. I'm loving Belgium. Belgium's all good. Yeah, we're in our little wooden cabin. Our listeners have been hearing us here for a lot longer than we've been here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep, it's and, true.
0: Uh, it's tekkarama is a great conference having a good time they built us this amazing plywood booth yeah it's cool but you know it's in a movie theater yes so it has that really cool like space effect yes you know
2: like the the space is really really cool yeah and they've got a i mean they've got a big entertainment area here and so forth right and all the tents outside for food like they've done a great job
0: lots of geeky stuff going on Mm -hmm. all right well uh you know what it's time for better know framework awesome What do you got? Well, if you go to 1304.pwop.me, you'll get to Ops Dash. Nice. OpsDash is a self-hosted server and service monitoring service for $1 per server per month. Wow. It's a dashboarding and alerting, cluster-aware, can monitor services... And they claim it's lean, mean, and easy to deploy. only reason I bring it up is because it's uh, trending right now. Oh, it's hot, is it? It's pretty hot, yeah. I can see it ha- a lot of people uh, linking to it and talking about it. So there's agent-based monitoring of Linux servers on Intel and ARM hardware, including Raspberry Pi. I don't know why they need to say yeah, that. I need to monitor my Raspberry yeah. Pi. Uh, you can monitor uh, clusters, aggregate metrics over groups of servers or services query your existing topology from AWS tags uh, out of the box support for MySQL Memcache and more uh, alerting via email, HipChat, slack and PagerDuty. duty uh, carefully crafted to prevent notification spam that's really good um, pre-configured to show the most important health and performance metrics in the dashboard
2: customize your dashboard and, and that's pretty much it five servers and five services for free Yeah. So you can get it started. And then, if you, you know, the numbers start to go up and they're going to go up, then a buck a piece.
0: And I haven't used this. The only reason I brought it up again is just because uh, people are talking about it. Nice. Yeah. So, opstash, that's what I got.
2: Who's talking cool. to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off show 1170, the one we did with Mr. Seaman. We talked about less is more. Mm. And all this way of like minimizing language to sort of stretch your mind, different beauty, ways to think about it. Uh, the beauty of constraints. Yes, the beauty of constraints. Huge amount of commentary, and you heavily involved in that com- those conversations too, Mark. That this was just one of those shows that lots of people were talking about. Yeah. And I uh, pulled this particular comment out. This is from Ali, who says, we, he's quoting us. We now have so much memory that we don't really know what we're going to use it all for anyway. And uh, yeah. Ali fights back on that. He says, this statement, I'm afraid, completely ignores the new patterns of and emerging dynamics of building software components and services. In an environment where computing is rented rather than purchased yeah. in the cloud... And you can squeeze the last few hundreds of megabytes out of each VM by running yet another container. These factors will directly impact competitiveness of your business model and potentially makes or breaks your company. I think I really disagree with this mm. because you're talking plus or minus a dollar, and if your business is that tight, like you need to relook at your business model.
1: You need to look at what does it actually cost to develop the software in the first place. Right, right. The labor cost
2: and the return for most software in most of these businesses is so much higher than the cost of operating it now that yep. you're only paying for what you use. You can afford to be inefficient in exchange for making it easier to write and maintain the software. Uh, inefficient with the resources, that is. Uh, but he goes on. As someone who has been on the side building a startup on a shoestring, I can tell you how much I care about the memory consumption of my applications, where I have rewritten my code so as to be able to run three containers on a VM with a mere two gigabytes of RAM. Yeah. So he's saving his upfront investment costs by spending more time right? You know, optimizing software. If computing were a gold mine, we are gradually reaching the area of the mine where the amount of gold we recover might not justify the extraction cost. And that is certainly true with the whole big data and analytics. That is where efficiency makes or breaks. And again, I'm going to disagree with you here, Ali, because utility computing has now made it super easy that we don't have to be very efficient with big data. We are starting to do... You know, why figure out which algorithm to run? Run all of them and compare results. Mm. You know, that's actually resource inefficient, but time efficient. Right. Because time is the limiting factor there. Right. I would like to add one more thing, which is the emergence of Go and Rust, which you talked about in that show, where the focus is again back on binary compilation and performance and lean memory footprints. Yep. Where readability and maintainability were a major concern with C and C. Now, with all modern syntax of Sys languages, we can almost eat the cake
1: and have it at the same time. But I, st- I still think he brings up some interesting points, maybe not in the context. Right. So you disagree about the context because you dis- disagree about cloud computing. Yes. But, you know, we're moving in both directions But because in, in you know, one direction we're moving towards things that are you know bigger and bigger. But on the other hand, we're also trying to move towards things that are smaller and smaller and yes. having wearable mm. technology and all of that. So I would still think that he actually does have a valid point in the sense that some of the um, some of the advantages that we have from having lots of memory and so on are not available yeah. on small devices. True. So maybe the things that we talked about there do not apply on, in those very constrained environments. Yeah. So that's fair enough. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. True. There's no and, and silver I mean, bullets.
2: And he's talking about running a startup. Uh, yeah. which is great, and he's doing it on his own budget yeah, good, to resist taking money as long as possible. But he is tra- making a trade-off here. One of the things about a startup is getting to market quickly, and he is spending more time optimizing to minimize cost rather than building faster, getting in front of customers sooner. You know, you may regret that exchange. You know, that's a tough thing to talk about. We, you know, hindsight on Strange Loop, we felt like we didn't move fast enough. You know, for all the things, as much as Strange Loop was a success, if we'd been that much faster to market, you know, there was a bunch of other opportunities for us that were missed because we took our time on that. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's 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 easier to measure money than it is to measure time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But and and the constraints on money are always very clear because you know where it comes from. But. I value time really highly, and the ability to make maintainable code, so forth, it makes, it makes a huge difference. But I'm with you, if the constraint is the r- actual resource, like as soon as you get away from the cloud and then in, back into you know, what we're doing with computing these days, shrinking it down, so forth, being efficient is important. So, Ali, thank yep. you so much for your comment. A uh, Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at or via any of our social media, because we publish every show, Facebook and Google+. Plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Richard Campbell. And send us a tweet. We use him for breath mitts. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's officially introduce Mark Seaman. Mark helps programmers make code easier to maintain. He's a Danish freelance programmer, author, conference speaker, and MVP. He's created courses for Pluralsight, written a book, and numerous technical articles. He's created open source software and even written production software that works. Nice. (laughs) Unlike all the rest of you guys. (laughs) When not geeking out on software development, he likes cooking and eating gourmet food. Notice the placement of the comma. He likes cooking, comma, And eating gourmet food. (laughs)
2: Uh,
0: Another favorite pastime is reading books on various topics, both fiction and nonfiction. Once his tennis elbow has healed, he
1: hopes to be able to pick up his guitar again. And that's an old bio. Have you they, That is, yeah.
0: Have you picked up your guitar?
1: Um, no, I'm, just, I'm almost there, but I've just been traveling so much anyway, so I just thought that I would give my elbow a little bit more you uh, know, time. Um, but um, I think I actually have some, some months where I'm not going to go anywhere anyway, So oh, good. when I get back from this one. Very so good. So I think um, I'm going to do that. Yeah, you should. Yeah. I totally agree. And uh, what
0: can we say? Um, we're talking about Haskell. This is just yet another thing that you've
1: decided to jump into. Yeah. You're just the man of many talents. I don't know uh, if I am that, but um, but I basically, you know, I've been doing F-Sharp development for the last five to six years, you know, on and off anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I was starting to wonder about is when I looked at other people's F-Sharp code, sometimes I could see that they had interesting ways of approaching the problem that I didn't really think of, yeah. and I could see a lot of those things actually came from other places. There is a sort of a tradition for functional programming, which is actually quite old now. Right. Um, so, um, so, I thought that, you know, I really wanted to know where all of this comes from, and I also wanted to be a better F-sharp programmer. Mm-hmm. So, I started to think about, okay, how, how, could, how can I actually do that? And um, one of the things that came to me then was um, to try to learn Haskell. Because Haskell is this interesting language that sort of reminds you a little bit about um, Mm F-sharp. Oh, really? Yeah, these languages actually do share some... um some common traits they both belong to a family of languages that have what we call a hindley Milner type system ah. um, but and you know I've
2: not heard that term but okay yeah, yeah
1: and I hadn't heard that term like five months ago either right mm. um, but it's just one of those things that you know once I started looking into what does that actually mean it turns out that there's actually a lot of you know a lot of work and a lot of theory behind those things sure um, so not to go too deeply into that but basically what that means is that it's a way that you that the compiler reasons about the type of the expressions that you actually write in your code. So a lot of times, you, if, you've, if you ever try to write F-Sharp code, you will have seen that you don't really need to declare a lot of types up front. Right. So, so it basically, often, it almost looks like dynamically typed code. It, look, you know, it looks like Ruby or Python because you, know, you just have some functions and some arguments and some function calls and so on, and, and things are being returned. But the funny thing about F-Sharp is that it's statically typed. Right. So the types are inferred. Yeah, but they're inferred because the compiler can look at the expressions that are you know being used and say, therefore you know the type of this input must be an right. integer or whatever it is, and the type of this output must actually be you know a sure. string or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and the way the the underlying principle of how the compiler figures that out is. Um, is based on this thing about Hindley-Milner type systems, and Haskell also does that. So right.
0: C-Sharp does type inference, but is yeah. it a different method that C-Sharp uses? I'm,
1: I don't think that... Um I don't think that C-sharp does Hindley Milner, no. Uh, so it does type inference for certain things. So you can do, um, for example, first of all, you do the var the keyword, yeah. does type inference. Also, sometimes you don't have to explicitly state your, um, your generic type arguments in certain methods because yeah. it can sort of figure it out from the input that you actually provide okay. to it. Mm-hmm. So it, it does remind you of that, but it's just like you know, F-sharp and Haskell just takes
0: that to the next level. So you still in C-sharp have to define a, the output type of a function. Do you do that in F-sharp and in Haskell as well?
1: So so what often happens in f and in Haskell is that you just write the function and then, and then it knows what the output type yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also often turns out that that I- output type is actually quite generic. Yeah. So what often happens because you don't limit yourself you know, in advance by having to declare the type if you can just sort of figure out you know, a way to write your sharp code or your Haskell code in such a way that you don't really have to declare the types at all yeah. it turns out that sometimes the function turns out to be much more generic mm. than you really thought it would be mm. right so that's, that's sort of an interesting thing. You, you'll, you'll have the same experience with F-sharp than, than you will with Haskell. There. And
0: many times functions return functions, don't they?
1: Uh, that happens as well, yeah. yeah. So that, that's what we call higher-order functions. If they return functions or if they take other functions as input, then, mm-hmm. they're, then they're extra special.
2: <laughs> we first bumped into Don Syme, was even before F-sharp. He yeah. was a researcher. And the big thing he was playing with was the idea that you can experiment with the language but rather than having to build an editor and all that other IDE plumbing, yep. he would just plug it into the studio. That, yeah. that this was the advantage was now you spend more time tinkering with your language. And I, th- I think from that morphed out F-sharp. But it, I always thought it was Scala he was fascinated by rather than Haskell.
1: Um, I'm, I've never really heard about him talk about um, Scala, but F-sharp is derived from another language called Old Camel. O- right. camel yeah came and o camel comes from another language called m mm-hmm. l yeah. um, so so if you think about the you know if a family tree of languages, right you will see that somewhere there's a similarity between Haskell and f sharp, but it goes f- you know further back than actually m l so the divergence is probably happening something in the late eighties, I guess right you wouldn't really know this, but Haskell is a language that's more than twenty years old mm-hmm. yeah. And it, I remember when uh, Visual Studio first came out and
0: .NET 1.0 came out, Haskell was one of the languages that they said ran in Visual Studio.
2: Oh, and really? It, and I'm not sure <laughs> how. There, was a, there was a Haskell.net?
0: Well, no. I, it might have been you know just done at a university or something. Yeah. It might have just been some open source thing. I'm not sure. but uh, And just to be clear, OCaml is O-C-A-M-L. Yes. And there's yeah. no E. There's O-caml. no E.
1: OCaml.org. E. Yeah. So Haskell. Yeah. Tell us about the awesomeness that it is. So Haskell is really interesting because it's a strictly functional language, and, um, and basically what that means is that functions are pure unless declared otherwise. Right. Um, so we just probably need to define what we mean by a pure function. Sure. But a pure function is a function that has two properties. And the first property is that a function can have no side effects. So you can't have it, you know, you can't have it send emails or, you know, delete files from disk when you run the function. Right? Can't reach outside the function. Yeah. And, it, and not even, you know, the, the things that I talked about was pretty obvious, but it can't even, you know, change a bit somewhere. Right. So that's the one thing that it can't do. And otherwise, uh, the other thing is that it needs to be deterministic. So if you have, if, if you, you know, Feed it with the same input; it's going to give you the same result every time. Right. We- um, and that sounds like, you know, don't all functions do that? But actually, basically, you know, if you do it in, in C Sharp, if you take and ask, you know, C Sharp code, what's the current type of, of, um, of on your computer at the moment? Yeah. That's actually, you know, changing the answer every time you ask. Sure. Yeah. So it's that's,
2: non-deterministic.
1: It's non-deterministic. So that's not a pure function. Right. Yeah. Um, but in Haskell, functions are expected to be pure unless otherwise noted. Right. Um, so, so we really put an emphasis on all of those pure functions. Pure by default. It's pure by default, and it has a very strict separation between functions that are pure and functions that are impure. Mm. Uh, so it's not that you can't do impure code at all in Haskell, but it's very strictly segregated from each other. And when you start
0: to think of what are my pure functions and what are my not my pure functions, it really has an effect
1: on how you write code, does it? Absolutely, absolutely it does. So one of the things that, that, that I discovered recently is that um, in object-oriented D- design there is a um, there's a well-known architecture called ports and adapters. Some right. people also call it hexagonal architecture yep. or the onion architecture. It has mm-hmm. many names, but it's sort of like the um, one of the ideal types of architectures. Basically, a description of you know layered application architecture done right. Right. Um, but my experience with um, doing object-oriented uh, you know programming for more than a decade is that. Um, if I try to be a team lead on a team or an architect on a team, and I try to get my team to move in that direction in object-oriented code, mm-hmm. you know, if I look away for just a moment, everything just collapses because then you know <laughs> some object, so some junior developer comes in and he, he calls or she calls you know the database directly from my domain layer, and then everything is just you know one yeah. piece, big piece of spaghetti. Right. Um, but what happens in Haskell is that. Um, Because you have this strict segregation between the pure and the impure stuff, uh, one of the things that comes from that is, well, first of all, you know, pure functions can call other pure functions. You know, impure functions can call other impure functions. But Mm -hmm. also, you know, impure functions can call pure functions because it doesn't make them more or less impure. Right. Impure
2: Um, is just impure.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the other way it doesn't doesn't work. Right. You know, you can't call an impure function from a pure function. Right. Because if you could, you know, that then that pure function will also become yeah, impure.
2: impurity is yeah. contagious.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that segregation between those two worlds is actually enforced by the Haskell compiler. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Um, so that means if you know, unless you go to one extreme and just write all your code in impure in an impure context in Haskell, which would be you know possible, right. But not desirable. Yeah. Then you have this segregation where all the pure stuff is actually what you really care about. That impl- that's implementing your business logic and all the interesting things that are often difficult to get right. Sure. And then you'll need to figure out, to in, you know, at the edge of the system, you'll need to figure out how do I actually communicate with the outside world. Right. So if you draw that in the same way, it turns out that what you actually end up with is an architecture that looks a lot like the ports and adapters architecture and object-oriented design. I think it was Ian Cooper
0: we talked to at NDC London a couple of years ago, Richard, yeah. who told us about hexagonal ports and adapters. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's Ian Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. You're right.
2: Yeah. I think we did a whole show, really, about the he- hexagonal architecture. Yeah. It
0: was mind blowing It was really wonderful. It's a really
2: interesting way to think about the problem.
0: Sure. Yeah. And it really illustrates sort of the... The deficits
2: of you, you know the, that are inherent in object-oriented programming. Sure, and and how ingrained it is actually in our head. Yeah. Uh, not to digress, I just want to tell you something. You just sort of pulled out of nowhere. Hey, I remember when .NET was brand new, and there was going to be a Haskell on .NET and so forth. Yeah. I'm like, are you crazy? There is no way. Yeah. I found it. Yeah, there was, wasn't there? It was a Brazilian university was going to implement Haskell. This is in two thousand three, so this is like .NET one, yeah, maybe one point one. They never did a release, maybe two, maybe it was done. No, that's two thousand four. Two thousand five is .NET two. Okay, so this is right at the beginning of .NET. Somebody was immediately going after, I'm going to do functional languages on this. Yeah. It didn't happen. Oh, okay. I found I'll include the site just so you can look at it, because it's like it's an artifact. It's the <laughs> old .NET logos. And so the
0: reason I know that is because I was one of the guys that was contracted by Microsoft to go do the .NET tour, Interesting. the original .NET tour in cities all over America. And uh, that, that was one of the slides
2: that had all of the languages
0: the crazy that it could lines. run. <laughs> And Haskell was on the list.
2: And I, I don't think it ever ran. I had never heard of Haskell. But there was a link on the Haskell page to sml.net. Okay. Which, up did had last implementation was in 2006. I don't even they, know what that they is. It actually though. had st- it's standard ML. Oh, yeah. it's ML.
1: Okay, standard yeah, ML. It's okay. standard ML
2: yep. running on the CLR. Wow. Back in 2006. It hasn't been updated. It? Like, this, right. What's interesting is these are these are tombstone websites, right? Right. Like, yeah. They're dead. Yeah. They're deader than dead. But... We forget. Yeah. We would so C-sharp centric. No, no. Ooh, the revolution that is F-sharp. Yeah, right. People have spent a lot of time for a long time trying to take advantage of the CLR. our Fujitsu COBOL. We yeah, well, COBOL.net. Kobol I actually dot had net. a co-
1: customer that did that. No so, kidding. Yeah, pretty big uh, Danish bank, actually. Wow. Um, because they had so much legacy code. But yeah. you also know how much the um, cost of actually renting, you know, mainframes is. Sure. Yeah. So they did like a three year project with lots of developers just trying to get, you know, away from those mainframes. And, and you know, when I talked about them, are you crazy? That's going <laughs> to cost you millions. Right. And it's kind of like, yeah, we, we get those back in, you know, less, you know, renting right. cost of uh, mainframes in like, micro- two, in like two years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Microfocus is up to date with Visual Cobalt 2.3 for Studio <laughs> 2015. So
0: Fujitsu no longer owns it?
2: Well, I don't know. Yeah, Micro I think it's a Fujitsu Cobol because that's the, okay. the Fujitsu skyline. Yeah, yeah. But um, totally current. Wow. You know, here we are, like, that's from 2003, that's from 2006. This is 2015, dude. This wow. is, they're running. This is the product. <whistles> but it is it is one of those sites where, you know, if you ask for a price, it's Col- not listed anywhere. Call us. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call us. We'll let you know. Although there is a freely downloadable version oh. of Cobol for Visual Studio 2015 on this site. Right. I will include a link. If you're missing Cobol,
0: you don't have enough COBOL in I'm, your I'm life. I'm just going to let
2: that hang there. I <laughs> miss COBOL. <laughs> yeah, there you go. COBOL for.NET. Anyone, Anyone? Actually, you know, it's a great time to start working on your next April Fool's Day gag, <laughs> to actually write a service in COBOL under .NET and then show it to your boss.
0: Speaking of April Fool's Day gags, I don't know if this was last year, but Microsoft announced uh, MS-DOS for mobile. <laughs> Ooh. And it was no, that was a
2: real app I, I think I've got that installed on my phone
0: Yeah, but it was an April Fool's gig But it Gag. ran, <laughs> it
2: worked It was an icon on my Win phone when I clicked on it It dropped to me to a C-Prom And the
0: best part was the video Because they were saying, you know, it all started With MS-DOS and People just keep asking us when are you going to get MS DOS. Well, it's finally
2: here, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so awesome. Such <laughs> so silly. Now we get Bash instead. Yeah, right. yeah. Now we get Bash. It's, <laughs> it's hard to even imagine. Yeah. All right. So Haskell. Let's, where were we? <laughs> right, right. The heck where are we talking? About, <laughs> right. anyway? So I'm. I mean, there's so many functional choices. What does Haskell bring to the table? Because it's not a .NET language. It, is, it is not a .NET language. That, yeah. It, you know, makes sense for me to. You know. To what, how is it going to make me a better developer in my the rest of my life? Right. Okay, I
0: guess another way to say that is, or to ask it is, do I have to go completely ports and adapters with everything, or can I just? Put some sprinkle some Haskell in my app and make it
1: work. Well, the reason why I'm learning Haskell is actually not to use it, and uh, I know it, I don't really expect anyone to actually pay me to, to do Haskell code. You know, if, if that if that ever happens, you know, give me a call. Um, we'll all be excited about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, ex- I, and, and it's sort of the story about Haskell anyway. I don't know if you know the story, but Haskell is sort of a, a language that is almost designed to be not successful. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it is supposed to be not successful. It's <laughs> it's really, so far, the re- Achieving their goal. Well, no, they're, they're actually kind of, you know, moving away from that goal at the moment. <laughs> um, but the re- but and the funny thing is, you know, Haskell is really, really a strange language because it's actually a language that was designed by committee. Oh no! Yeah. Wow. And despite that, it's actually a, quite an elegant language. <laughs> you wouldn't think. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to three guys bash languages. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm really loving, you know, Haskell. It's very, very interesting to learn. But, but it's just, a, it's just the lighthearted way of talking about it. Mm-hmm. But basically, the story of Haskell is that um, lots of, of university people were doing all sorts of experiments with um, functional languages mm-hmm. in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and every, you know, basically every professor at every university yeah. was inventing his own language or her own language. At at a certain point they came together at some conference and said, well, you know, that's really inefficient. I wonder if we could make some some sort of common platform Mm. that is designed to be a language that we can all share, but then you can experiment with it by adding all sorts of language extensions to it. Right,
2: right. Creating a naturally extensible aspect to the language.
1: Yeah. So that's what they did, and I think the first one was was in the start of the 90s. I can't even remember the... um, the exact um, date, but I think ninety-one, ninety-two, something like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was the you know version one, and that's obviously not what we're using today. No. Um, so it's it, been today, twenty years. Yeah, I think we we use something called what is it called? Yeah, I think it's called Haskell twenty fifteen.
2: Oh, okay. So they just yeah, going with their annual identification. Uh, well,
1: not like well, it's not every year because right. I think the version before that was Haskell ninety eight. Oh. Yeah.
2: Okay, so, so they were due.
1: Uh, well, lots of things were happening in between, but it's sort of like you know, and then they got together again and decided on here's a new standard, right? But um, basically, you you, have, you know, just like the um, C sharp specification, you can actually take that specification and, and implement that language yourself. Mm-hmm. So there is a couple of. Competing implementations of Haskell, but the one that everyone uses is something called the Glasgow Haskell Compiler, okay. which is also the one that I'm using. Okay, mm. um, sort of de facto standard. Yeah, that, that's the sort of reference one. Right. So, so, but you were asking about, you know, do I ever, you know, yeah. expect to do some work with it? Um, so I just picked it up to learn and become a better functional programmer. And it runs on Linux. You said the one that um, I actually run it on Windows. Oh, sure. there's a yeah. Windows, Windows download. There right. is a Windows
0: download. Yeah. Yep. And so are you doing this just to sort of move your mind into a different space when it comes to programming? Because I know that's a, a big
1: thing. For you, especially. Yeah, I really love just the feeling that I get in my brain when it's totally fried, you know. (laughs) Maybe maybe not when it happens, but afterwards, kind of like, oh, wow. (laughs) And, and,
0: you know, I love that because when you learn a new computer language, you you make associations between, oh, Oh, that's kind of like this and that language and this and that language. And
2: and you can sort of understand better how things work. I I look at some of the biggest impact of F-Sharp is what it's done to C-Sharp programmers. Yeah, sure. Writing more functional C-Sharp seems to be this huge benefit just that mindset shift, although it's still very discipline-based if you're going to do it in C-sharp. Heck, so. writing JavaScript
0: changed the way I write C-sharp. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, uh, Made you love C-sharp all the more. <laughs> so <laughs> it- hey, you know, uh, this is a good time to say this. We, we, we joke about JavaScript, but JavaScript is like the number one language in the world. Yep. And, you know, it, it is awesome. I'll, I'll say it. It's awesome.
2: Well, as long as
0: you don't drive
2: yourself crazy. Well, and, and, and do the right things. I mean, the big, That's thing, right. big thing that made JavaScript so compelling is that the battle of Chakra and the V8, right? The yeah. IE team and the Google team racing to build the fastest browser. Right. And suddenly we come up with these two amazing JavaScript compilers right. that just opened the door to... This is not a slow language. This is a completely capable, dynamic language with you know, all of this functionality in it. Yeah. So to reiterate,
0: we love JavaScript. Don't send tweets. Don't send emails. No yeah. flames. We yeah.
2: love JavaScript. Okay. We kid. We're kidders. Okay. You, you, you need to stop cutting the heads off of horses and mailing it to me. Okay? Yes, the, we, it's hard on the horse. It really is hard. On yeah. And
0: the mail carrier. They yeah. really don't like it. Yeah. And, and
2: it leaves stains on my, yeah, my entranceway. It's, it's just it's not good. Bad. We love
0: JavaScript. Yeah. I personally use it yep. all the time. It's around. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> but we do didn't actually say anything bad about JavaScript, no. did we? No, no,
1: no, but no, but, you know, we we, <laughs> we throw JavaScript under the bus a lot. Oh, on, <laughs> a bus, on a regular basis. But I do as well. Um, mm. but, but, you know, this just... Put it that way in a way that, you know, just because you like Haskell doesn't mean that you have to hate everything else. You hey, don't hey, have to hate anything yeah, else. Doug Not
0: throws JavaScript under the <laughs> bus and he invented JSON.
2: <laughs> yeah. Discovered JSON. Yes. Yeah. He discovered JSON. Yeah, no, and he wrote uh, JavaScript, the good parts, back when you'd look at it and go, good parts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that
1: really leads to an interesting discussion, though, by the way, because are abstractions actually discovered or are they invented? Right. And, well, I really and, want to get into that. Yeah. But
0: first, we, you know what time it is, I Richard. must
2: be that happy time again. That's
0: right. It's time to predict the next big language to run on the CLR. What is it? German. <laughs> <laughs> Just Ger- in case you didn't have enough rules. It's German.net? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a kidder. I kid. That's what I do. No emails, please. It's actually time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com/superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner Richard is Dino Malahusic. Congratulations, Dino. Yeah. Top clap for you, sir. Top clap for Dino. And Dino just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. So do it. And, of course, Mark Seaman, it's your turn. Five
1: grand. Let's go shopping. What are you going to buy? Oh, well, you know, I actually want to have something that I don't think the hardware cost of that is actually going to be particularly expensive. But I'm not sure that such a system exists at the moment. Um, But maybe someone can advise me. I'd really hope to to do that. But basically, you know, um, I'm listening to lots of podcasts. You know, for example, .NET rocks, mm-hmm. and I do that while I'm exercising and just doing chores in the house yeah. and so on. And I have this old rig that is falling apart. But basically, I use uh, Zoom. Do you remember the Zoom player? I you do. have a Zoom
2: that's still alive. I have a
1: Zoom that's then still they alive. They shut the service for it. It does well, not really, but you know, it does one thing that it does very well. It knows, it subscribes to all the things for me, right? And it it keeps track of you know which ones I've actually listened to, and it you know it knows where even in the episode that I am, right? And when I've you know listened to something, it just Deletes that. What kind of phone do you have? I do have an Android phone. Oh, moment. an Android yeah.
0: phone. Oh. Yeah,
1: so, that's, so the problem with that is yeah. the Zoom actually works still, but the mechanical parts of it, which is basically where I plug in my earphones, right. that is falling apart. So I think you're going about this wrong.
0: Instead it's, of asking the listeners what uh, what you should get software wise I think you
1: should offer to sell your Zune. <laughs> oh I was actually considering buying another one right? <laughs> if you want to buy Mark
0: Siemens Zoom,
1: <laughs> it's vintage
0: yes. it's vintage and it was used by Mark Siemens yes.
1: <laughs> you
2: should uh, five thousand yes. dollars <laughs> or, st- or another Zoom that isn't broken <laughs> yeah changing <laughs> <laughs> a new one for yours yeah. Uh, and you'll know Who your you true fans are mm-hmm. You know In related news um, I drive an, an Infinity mm-hmm. And I like to have Lots of music loaded on it yeah. So I don't use CDs And things And you have an iPod I have an iPod Which I You know I don't like having an iPod Because iTunes is like Sticking needles in your eyes right. <laughs> Uh But it works really well. In the car. In the car. Yeah. And they also had a, a USB port. So I, like, I've tried all the other alternatives, and they're all terrible. The iPod's right. actually the best option. Yeah. But iPods, A, aren't made anymore. Right. Right? And they're and they starting to wear out. I just replaced my iPod with a remanufactured iPod with an SSD in it. Oh. There's, a cla- there's a group of people out there that take iPods apart, change the, the, the DAC, so it's actually higher audio quality, wow. and change the controller and put like 128 or 256 gig SSDs in the thing Jeez. and resell them. No and, kidding. And one of the things they're banging into now with that kind of capacity is they can only handle 40,000 songs. Because Which, of the OS or whatever. Yeah, there's some yeah. limit inside of the firmware for that. I mean, yeah. you never had that problem. We didn't have those <laughs> kinds of capacities, right? It used to be the big iPod was like a 180-gig drive. That's right. But now I have a solid-state remanufactured iPod for my car.
0: I actually have an old iPod that probably doesn't even boot up anymore. Probably not. Probably not.
2: But there are kits you can buy with the t- special tools to take the iPod apart to actually be able to, uh, to do all mm. this. So Wow. It's crazy. I, I don't Lazy. know if there's ever going to be Zoom kits like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I have a couple of Zoons, man. You're welcome yeah. to them. I'll, I'll pass them along. <laughs> I, I,
0: know, I would recommend RSS Radio okay. if you had an iPhone. I don't know if they have an Android version, but right. if you look, look but all of those features are right there. Yeah, and but you don't the phones have to use are so iTunes. big, though. So that's the thing. No, no. I mean, they might actually have an Android version. That's what yeah. I'm saying. RSS Radio. But it does all the g- good stuff. I'll have to check it out. You know? or you could do something crazy like download every podcast's app, <laughs> like .Net rocks, for example. I mean, we would. Oh, do that. that! But I,
1: yeah, but I'm I'm not totally faithful. I actually listen to other podcasts as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it was a joke.
0: That's
1: why it's funny. I, you know, I'm Boy, I, am, da- I am Danish. I have no sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. It might be the English Danish uh, <laughs> humor barrier. <laughs>
2: All right, where were we? We were talking about Haskell. So yes, the language that doesn't want to be successful, and, and so far oh yeah. is succeeding at it.
0: And you really uh, can't expect to use it in production, but it will, it
1: will tickle your brain. There are people who are, who are using that in production, but okay. but really? it's not
2: a normal thing that's not what it's intended for well, so does it make sense for me to fire up Haskell download the package for, for Windows and start practicing like the Euler exercises I mean is that a good idea with Haskell is I, an, an have, challenge?
1: I have never tried the Euler exercises so what um, are you
2: what are you writing in Haskell why would you do
1: this why, why would what what I you do it what, what, what am are I doing, doing? <laughs> what are you up to <laughs> well it's basically you know it boils down to you know a, a question that I was um, that I got from a uh, in a conference a couple of months ago, there uh, was an, an attendee there who, who asked me, you know, how do I know that I write good F-sharp? There's a great question. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I'm sure. like, you know, I actually don't know that yet. That, that is what I'm still learning five right. years in. Mm. But what one good of the rea- F-sharp looks like. Yeah. But one of the reasons why I wanted to learn Haskell was because I wanted to learn to think strictly functional right, yeah. and F-Sharp does not prevent me from doing all sorts of impure things yep. which is definitely it's force because it's, it's not as rigid so it allows me to get away with all sorts of things because you know I need to be able to interact with all the impurities that are already in the .NET framework right. but it also does not force me to be you know sufficiently um, functional, if you will, right. And and as far as pure functions go, you said business logic
0: is a great application for pure functions. I think it is. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's just if this then that kind of stuff.
1: Well, that's that, uh, and also um, if, if Sharp and Haskell share another trait, and they they it, they have what we call algebraic data types, mm. um, and that is something that sounds very scary. Um, but let's try to make it no, not, you know, not, not particularly me. scary. But basically what it what it says is that it says, well, you know from C Sharp and Java all sorts of normal object-oriented languages, right. you know that you can create classes and those classes have, you know, various different elements inside of them. You know, you have class fields and you typically, you know, expose them as properties. Right. Um, so if you start to think about the combinatorial um, number of values that you can combine those things. If you re- imagine that you have a class that has, you know, if you have a class that only holds a byte, you have, you know, 256 different values mm-hmm. it can take. You know, if you have a class that holds a, a byte field, but also a Boolean, you know, you have right. now total the, the total number of possible values you can have is, 2 times 256, that's 512. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, so we call those product types because the amount of values that a, that a type can have is the product of the, you know, the entire sure. number of values each type can have. Sure. Yeah. So that's a product. Yep. And all your normal languages have those things yep. because they're just classes. Mm. But in sharp and in Haskell, we also have something that we call sum types. And a sum type is a thing that can be either one thing Or another thing, or a third thing, or a fourth thing, whatever. Yep. So those be like tuples or Uh, tuples are actually product types because again, if you have a tuple of a boolean and and a byte, that's still you know five hundred and twelve different values. Right. Right. But if you have a sum type, which in F Sharp is called a discriminated union, um, that contains a you know either a boolean or a byte. You know the number of possible combinations there is or, the number of bytes or which, other things too, or it's other not things, not just limited to. No, no. So, so I'm just trying to explain why we actually yep. call them algebraic uh, yeah, data yeah, yeah. types. Yeah. Um, so, in that case, you have like 200 and um, 256 values from the byte plus the two values that you can get out of the boolean because it must be you must select either one or the other i gotcha but and so that's basically why i say you have product types and you have some types and that's sort of you can start to think about it a little bit like algebra mm. and that's why they're called that I um, see. but the interesting thing about you know f sharp and haskell and having those discriminated unions is that it gives you another axis on which you can start to model you know business problem domains mm. um so um, I'm writing code in my head right now. Yeah, I'm not yeah. Listening. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I'm serious. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to best. use So, the so, so one of the, there's a lot of things where you can say well, you can't really express, a, you know, a business constraint in C sharp or in Java because um, you can't really distinguish between things that can be one or the other. Sure. Right. Um, but that is trivial to do in Haskell or in F-Sharp. Mm-hmm. So let's take a simple example. Let's say you walk into a fast food restaurant you want to order a burger and uh, some fries and, uh, you know, a Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to ask you, you know, okay, so you want a Pepsi. Do you want a small, medium, or large one? Right. Um, but with the burger, they're, they're not going to ask you, do you want a small, medium, or large burger? That's, right. that's, it only comes in one size. Yeah. Sure. But then they're going to ask you, you know, do you want extra cheese on that or do you want bacon on that? Right. Yeah. Um, so you have... So and then you have fries and fries in this you know thought experiment only comes in one size. Right. right. So if you want to if you need to build a system that can model that you say well some products come in a variation that says small medium or large and then again you know in between that you need to be able to pick between Pepsi and 7 Up and right. Mountain Dew or whatever. Yes.
2: Medium-sized and, drink comes in a bunch of options.
1: Yeah. And so,
0: then, so to carry your metaphor yeah. here, in, in C-sharp or in any object-oriented language, we would have objects with enumeration properties, and we would have all of a sudden you've got this whole hierarchy and trees of options and things.
1: Right, and you need to do all sorts of, of, you know, try to downcast things to figure out, okay, so is this actually a drink? Yeah. You know, that be, might be a subtype. Yeah. Right. But then the subtype might actually have a... You know, the drink subtype may have a size property, yeah. which is yeah, just an right. you know, enum, and then, you know, a t- drink type, you know, Pepsi right. or whatever. So if you're trying to figure all this yep. stuff
0: out and determine what's
1: what and what can be what, you'd have a lot of switches and if yes, statements. exactly. And, and you sort of still have to do that in Haskell because you need to, or in F sharp, because you need to deal with all those things. Right. But the compiler understands that, and we, it knows that not only is this um, union, this tagged union, um, it, it's heterogeneous, but mm-hmm. it also knows that it's finite. Mm-hmm. So it means that every time I have, if we call this thing, if we call it product, mm-hmm. and say it might be a drink, it might be fries, it might be a burger. Right. Mm-hmm. Every time you get a, an input value of the type product, you will have to deal with all three cases. The, and the compiler's going to be unhappy if you tr- if you just you know if you imagine you try to downcast it to to just drink mm-hmm. the compiler says yeah yeah but what if it's a burger what if it's fries yeah you haven't dealt with those cases right and the if sharp compiler is just going to give you a warning but then you can go into the you know the visual studio settings and say treat warnings as errors and now you have a com- nice compiler error every time you didn't deal with an, you know, with an outcome. right So instead of having all of those non-reference exceptions all over the place, you just have compiler support that actually enables you to, to check all it of those things. Me. It's a whole other level of enforcement. Right? It is. Yeah. So there's a lot of things where, you know, um, I just had a, a, a discussion, pretty one-sided discussion with Robert C. Martin on Twitter here the other day, uh, because, <laughs> because, it, because it, he wrote about this whole trade-off between doing unit testing and te- test during development and, right. you know, and type safety. And I definitely understand that if you move towards a language that doesn't have any type safety at all, right. you need to have lots of tests in order to know that yeah. you didn't break things. Right,
2: but th- That's what sort of saved the dynamic language, yeah. right? Yeah. Just, I think Ruby was the language that really came up. Where yes, And, and
0: that, it was at a time when testing was coming in, so you right. couldn't have one without the other, really. No. But that, I
2: think the... the I was excited at how the maturation of testing that made dynamic viable right. was then moved over to the statically typed space, mm. not so much to validate right. typing, but to do all these other things. Yes. Right. It really grew testing up.
1: Yeah. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do testing at all, but I'm just finding that there are a lot of things that I would test even for C# code, sure. where I can say I can model my way out of this in in, in F# or in Haskell. Right. right. Um, and there are still things that I can't model, but I'm just sort of moving the slider. So you know, it's you, kind of a declarative sort of testing then. So the same way that I have static typing,
2: which is basically a declared way of validation, I could do a much more extensive set of validations yeah. around these around what uh, object constraints they have, what enumerations they might have, and so on. Right.
1: Yeah, I'm beginning to think about type system as a slider that you can move, you know, in one way or the other. Yeah. And and I think that you know, C sharp sits a little bit to the m- more towards the dynamic side. It's mm-hmm. not dynamic, but or we could say F sharp sits to the other side of C sharp. It's right. more statically typed, if yes. you will. And then or Haskell more is even declarative more declarative validation. Yeah. There there are lots of things you, that you can express in the type system in in F sharp that you can't in C sharp. Right. And then Haskell moves that you know further towards static typing in the sense there are also things in in, in Haskell haskell you can express in the type system right. that you couldn't do in f sharp so, and there so, are languages you know on the other you know beyond that sure. that do even more crazy stuff so i wonder why don
0: Syme and crew didn't adopt that model from haskell of things
1: being pure by default i basically because um, you know it runs on net and it one of the purposes of you know bootstrapping a language on top of an existing platform is that instead of having to reinvent everything from scratch you can say well you need to do web development. Just go and use, you know, ASP.NET MVC right. or Web API or whatever was out there when, when that started. Right. And you want to do, you know, client-side development, just use Windows Forms. That, that was, a, you know, when F-Sharp came out, sure. came out right. originally. But that also means that you need to make concessions to the platform that you're actually running on. Yeah. And the platform, you know, the .NET platform is through and through very, very object-oriented. Right, right. Um, so, so, so you know, F-Sharp is what Dunsheim calls a functional first language, which means that it it would like to be functional. Right, Right, yeah. So it makes it easy to be functional. It's actually sometimes a little bit awkward to write OO code in in F-sharp. Sure. But you can. Yeah. So that's why he made that decision. Yeah, And I think you could probably have made a decision where, you know, if you... sort of, as a thought experiment, think about Haskell running on .NET, you, you probably could do that, but basically you just need to say, every time you need to interface with the rest of .NET, you need to do that in an impure context because right. .NET doesn't really guarantee purity. Sure. Um, I mean, so, you could argue that IL may not be pure. Right. Well, in the end, Haskell actually compiles into machine code as well, and that's yeah. not pure, so it's just a compiler thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. In the end, it's it's all still, you know, moving bits around.
2: Hmm. But it's worthwhile from a, a code integrity point of view to make this distinction between pure and impure. I think practices. it's
1: very interesting because it forced me to rethink some things where, sure. you know, I actually thought that I had some good approaches to F-sharp and, you know, I, and then I just said, I'll try to port those to, the, to Haskell to see, you know, in order to validate my assumptions. Right. And it turned out that some of them were actually incorrect. Yeah. And I had to rethink parts of my approaches I, and I learned a lot from that. Yeah. And I can now take what I learned and then, backported into F-Sharp again. Now, when you're
0: developing in F-Sharp, do you typically use F-Sharp for just a piece of a project and C-Sharp for the rest of it? Or do you tend to develop everything in
1: F-Sharp? I tend to develop everything in F-Sharp. And one of the reasons for that is that, again, you know, the language actually gives you a lot of extra expressibility, if you will. Mm. And um, if you try to take your F-Sharp application and then Expose that so that C# or Visual Basic understands that mm. you sort of have to go for the lowest common denominator yeah, or the I intersection guess, between that. you know various different groups. Um, so you sort of lose a lot of the expressivity. And if you know the yeah. .NET framework, you can call it from F-sharp just like oh, you call absolutely, it from C-sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So that's just my approach because I think it's more valuable. The, the value that I derive from F-sharp is the expressivity of... Um, I'm having trouble with that word, but... Expressivity? Um, expressivity. It's <laughs> a tough um, one. Yeah. The expressivity of expressivity. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> a, that's the value that I get out of it. <laughs> the way that I can easily model you know things that are difficult to model, right. actually... Uh, pretty easy and I lose that if I have to interface too much with other .NET code but other people do it in lots of different ways and they you know say if you have something that is very complicated you know you need to implement a complicated algorithm and you just need to plug that complicated business algorithm into a system that you already have Mm -hmm. and that is written in C Sharp well that's certainly possible to do as well for sure Um, so just because I do it in one way doesn't mean that you can't derive value from it in a lot of other Mm. ways but that's just what I do right do you find that um, it's when when there's new C-sharp stuff that
0: comes out or new .NET stuff that comes out and there's no samples in F-sharp, do you find it really easy to just go between C-sharp and F-sharp yeah. for those kinds of things? It's yeah.
1: trivial? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been reading C-sharp since it came out. So that yeah. is, went what, 15 years? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can still read it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's not a problem. Every time F-sharp comes up
0: on the show, I ask these questions because I'm really interested in how people feel, the listeners feel about, you know, should I actually just use that Sharp all the time? Yeah, instead of C Sharp, and trying to find the reasons why somebody would. Well, not, and, it, and it's very tough no. to
2: justify working more than one language, right? And we yeah. recently did that show. Well, I guess a few weeks back now, um, with Sam Basu and, and John Bristow talking about the Telerik Developer Survey, and F Sharp scored under one percent. Yeah, yeah. You know where where C Sharp was like eighty three percent. It was just. Yeah. yeah, Insanely, ridiculously dominant. Yeah. It is,
1: yeah. And, and we're always, you know, the F-Sharp community is always a little bit sad about that. It's not that we... Um, I don't think we actually want to win. No. But we just want to Finn. feel... We just want to feel confident enough in the language that we think that we may have, you know, some sort of fledgling career of it. Right. That, that you know. Yeah. Well, and, and it, I mean, we want and a I, little respect. Well, yeah. I love Brian
2: Hunter and his whole group of people. And I mean, they're making great software. Yeah. I mean, there's no better win than they're actually delivering software to right. folks. Like, what Absolutely more do you right. want? Uh, and they, you know that—that that to me, I think is wildly important, right? And uh, that's
1: also why it's always interesting to talk to Rachel Reese and you yes. know, hear about the the whole entire Jets. That's, jet, that's uh, all jet. part jet. of Brian Hunter's in, uh,
2: ninja yeah. army, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> well, they're
0: they're great, and you know, I learned about the actor model from Ra- from yeah. Rachel Reese, right? And, uh, in F Sharp, yeah. Before I heard about any of this other stuff or yeah. anything or whatever. Maybe back in the day, yeah.
1: No Question. So, what's next for you, Mark? What what's on your to do list? Um, I'm actually I'm actually taking um. An early exit out of the conference season, so this is the, my last conference uh, for the next couple of months. Gotcha. So I think I'm just going to go home and actually figure out what to do next. Well, I do have some projects in the pipeline. Um, there's a course that I want to record in some sort of video form, and I have articles to write, maybe a book. And then there's NDC Sydney in uh, in yeah. August. Great. Yeah. Right. Which we are not going to be we at. We won't be there. You will not be there. Oh, we are going to miss it. I'm going to miss you. I,
2: I, Sad about it, but yeah. honestly, it just could could not make it work. No, and uh, no. we Will be in
1: Oslo, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but well, that's too London. close to me, so I'm, I couldn't be bothered to do that. No, yeah, no. That's that's not that's not true. But I, I'm not going there this year. All right.
0: <laughs> Unfortunate. <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you. And yeah, thanks you as too. always.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for having me.
0: You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.